The Leave Your Legacy podcast is supported by Wise Financial. Wise Financial is a Northwestern Mutual private client group member. For over 20 years, Wise Financial has dedicated its efforts to designing comprehensive wealth management strategies for business owners and many accomplished athletes. Through their efforts, Wise Financial has been recognized as an industry-leading firm. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. On today's show, we have an accomplished author, speaker, husband, father, and he was a pretty good football player. Take a look at this video of today's guest. How do you keep your dream alive when you keep doubting? How do you keep your dream alive when you keep doubting yourself? Your vision of success has to be far greater than your fear of failure. You gotta hold on to your dream more, more than you listen to anything else. I remember on the weekends when all of my friends, they would go to baseball games and do activities with their dad. I didn't have that. I used to go to the weight room and I used to exhaust myself there two, three hours because I just want dad to just come and tell me that, hey, son, you're doing a good job. But until that moment, I flipped the switch of like, you know what, man, dad ain't coming. So it's on me. I'm the one that's going to have to look in the mirror and say, hey, Thomas, you're doing a good job, man. So if you ever want something in life, anything, a good grade, you want a car, you want to become popular, famous, successful. People are only rewarded in public for what they practice for years in private. And the last thing I leave you with, the last thing, a man told me one time, he said, Thomas, if you do not prepare for this transition that's gonna happen, you'll be sorry. And there's two types of pain in life. The pain of regret and the pain of sacrifice. One lasts for a moment, sacrifice. And there's gonna be another one that's gonna last forever, and that's regret. Shoulda, woulda, couldas. You guys don't have to be that person. So please help me welcome to the show, Thomas R. Williams. To just give our fans a little bit about uh, Thomas R. Williams. Yeah, man. So uh, my parents, from going all the way back, uh, military brat. I was born in Fort Riley, Kansas. My parents uh, ended up getting a divorce. So my mom and I moved back to California, uh, lived with my grandparents for a couple of years. And then it began the journey and quest, man. So being biracial, growing up in a predominantly white community, I grew up with a lot of uh, one daddy issues. I always say that I've been able to clear up and fix. Uh, and then also some identity issues, being half black, half white. Yeah. Um, man, but I really found a calling and I really found purpose and value in playing sports. And so when I first picked up a baseball bat, I was like, wow, this is, this is incredible. This is, this is what I want to do. And then it really struck me is when I went to an Oakland A's baseball game and I was in the first grade. My mom saved up enough money. We went to an Oakland A's baseball game. And at the end of the game, she asked me, how'd you like it? And I was like, mom, that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. Like I want to play sports. And uh, a little bit of a side note, I'm an only child. And I tell people all the time, I'm my mom's favorite. And so <laughs> I'm a, uh, I, I love the attention. And so going to that baseball game that night, sitting in right field and watching nine players in the defense, one batter in the batter's box, I was like, I want to do that. So there on out, like every basketball shot I took, I was like, all right, five, four, three, two, one. Same thing with catching a football and the Super Bowl winning. And then it didn't really hit me until ninth grade when my high school football coach called and was trying to get me and recruit me to play football. I was like, I don't really want to play football. I don't want to get hurt, mess up this good right arm for the big leagues. And um, he said, you can play baseball. 
And this is where I learned the art of in negotiation. It's you could play baseball in the spring, but what are you going to do in the fall? And I was like, dang, I didn't have an answer for that. Yeah. And so I went up going out playing football. And that first year, man, it captured my heart. And uh, football became my main love. And I always tell people that baseball became um, the, the thing that kept me in shape for football. Ended up earning a scholarship to the University of Southern California. Uh, went in the class of 2003. And so in our draft class, or our recruiting class, it was Reggie Bush, Matt Leinart. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on. Darnell Bing. I mean, I think out of the 23 uh, freshmen that we had, uh, about 18 of us played at least one year in the NFL. Wow. And so um, went on to USC, had a combined record of 59 and six. And yeah. then when we, uh, you know, during the course of my college career, I didn't really even play much. And and fun fact is that people always read that I played in the NFL. So they just assume that I must've been a standout in high school, standout in college. Right. And uh, I only started 14 games in four years and like three of them came at fullback. So I only started like 11 games at linebacker. Um, but the thing was, is I was so versatile and as well as I took some of the jobs on the football field that a lot of people mm -hmm. don't take serious, like special teams. I took those serious, uh, went into the NFL, played five years there, had a career ending neck injury, and then life smacked me in the face. And it's, what are you going to do now? What are you going to do next? Yeah. Yeah. And so I was able to take some of my transferable skills of calling defenses, being in the middle of the huddle, standing up before pregame or, or halftime, postgame, getting the guys really fired up. And I've been able to translate that into uh, into a successful, impactful career. What yeah. did those coaches, what did, what did they pour into you? Like, um, because it's so important, because I know as a coach, we play many roles for the athletes that we coach. So I just wanted to see, uh, get a little bit of an idea of how they impacted your life as you were playing football and then now into your adult career. Yeah, I think one of the best things that I've, I've been around coaches ever since I was five years old until I was 30. And one of the greatest things that I noticed that the good ones that really stick out is that they care about the person. Mm. And, and, and one time I asked Ken Norton Jr., because uh, we had 12 guys, and I mean, these are alphas, linebackers, testosterone, masculine, just ego. And I just asked him one time when it was him and I in the meeting room, and I said, how do you coach us? Like, it, it's almost like you you know what to pull out of each one of us. You can talk to him this way. You can talk to him this way. You can talk to me this way. And he says, I always coach the person. Mm. You coach the person first and the player follows. And I think I finally, that was the first time it was actually articulated for me. That was the first time I understood it. But all the way back in high school, when Ed Santa Padre kept calling me every Wednesday, right around lunchtime. And I told my mom, like, when he calls, tell him I'm not here. And then it was back <laughs> when you had caller ID. So you pick up the phone and you look at your phone and you're like, nope. And so I'd have my mom the phone and I go like, no, no, no. <laughs> and then she'd pick up the phone, hey, Coach Santa Padre, yeah, he's right here. And I'd be like, oh, you sell out. <laughs> and so awesome. uh, he he also let me know that I could be seen. And so up until that point, I had never been really good at anything. Like it was, mm. I was decent, kind of like the the all-star. So I was the oversized, like eight, nine, 10 year old, you know? Right. And so I didn't have a choice but to throw the ball far and, and, and hit. And the funny story, I know obviously your background and then your, your, your son's background or your whole entire family's background is that um, I, uh, I got cut. The only time I've ever been cut from a team was my seventh grade basketball. My dreams went out the window in seventh grade. <laughs> and so cut me, then I come back to eighth grade year and I think he felt bad for me. So he put me on the bench as kind of like the 11th man. And right. so I'm still one for 27 behind the arc. So I got a career <laughs> high of nine points in eighth grade. And so it was like, nah, you gotta, you gotta do something else if you want sports. Yeah. But ultimately the great coaches, what they do is that they see the person, they see where they struggle. They see where some of the voids are. They see where, you know, where there's opportunity for growth and develop. And it's, they build that connection which then inside a connection, you have trust and then yeah. you can push for commitment. And so, so many times coaches skip over that connection and then they just ask for commitment. And it's like, man, some of the best coaches, they saw me built trust and told me how great I could be and then pushed me into the limelight that I wanted to go. Yeah, no, I feel you on that. I think that's the, for me as a coach, that's one of the things that's happened last year to this year with the young ladies that I coach is building that connection and trust. So it's, it's so huge. And going back to the point where you said you got life smacked you in the face, you have, you know, neck injury, 
And one of the toughest things I've seen for athletes at any level, whether they're high school to college, college to the pros, when it's time to hang up the shoes, the cleats, the basketball, like that's a tough transition. Um, what was difficult in that time when you're trying to like, okay, I'm done playing football. Now I have to figure it out. What were some of the tough things you had to face in that transition? Yeah, I, I would say everything. I had to strip, I, I, I literally stripped myself or I got stripped of a face mask. Mm. You know, football is one of those only sports where you get to hide behind a jersey or a face mask. And like, people don't really see you. Not unless yeah. you're at the forefront, the Tom Brady's, you know, Peyton Manning's, and you do a lot of commercials and things like that. So you could literally hide. And so uh, I had to get down to the nitty gritty of what did football really represent for me? And it was my father. Mm. And so, like I mentioned previously, is that football gave me everything I believe that a, a father should give their child. It, discipline, encouragement, you know, camaraderie, success, failure, learning, all the journeys. And so I, I really became addicted to that. And I think that's why I was able to excel and go to the highest level and play in the NFL. Not because I was a good football player, but because every time I went to football, I got to be around my father, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah. And absolutely. so... For me, when I got done playing, it was, you got to face that. That's okay. Now this is gone. Now you're going to have to deal with the disconnection between you and your father, which we have. And so for the last 12, 13 years, we've been building on our relationship. And so I have a much different relationship today than we did then. I think the other part is that for your whole life, you're measuring up against your times or your best stats and against other people, right? And so we know that comparison is a thief of all joy. And so for your whole entire career, you've been comparing yourself to your opponent or even to your best self. And so I knew how fast I was. I knew how strong I was. I knew how much I could jump, but I didn't know about the soft skills that I had deep down inside of me that could actually be valuable for the next phase of life. And so going through the different classes or the different courses, getting certified in all of these different life skills, because I passed over them. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, you go to class, you just nod your head, take your tests, pray to God, you get a passing grade, go off to practice, let's beat whoever we're getting ready to play. Right. And then it wasn't until now that somebody said, wow, you're actually good at speaking. You're, you're, you're articulate. Oh my goodness. You, you actually listen really well, man. You have this aura about you that really gets people motivated, gets people enthusiastic about whatever they're facing and doing. And then it was how is it that you can build reps and doing something that you want to do? The first thing that I would say for to my younger self, if I had to go back and tell people and say, okay, Thomas, first and foremost, you need to go see a therapist. So yeah. I was in therapy every <laughs> yeah. single week for five years, Kenyon. Wow. Five years. I mean, I would just go there and look at him. And still to this day, I still talk to my therapist. His name's Doug. And I just called him the other day. And it was getting to the bottom, mm -hmm. having closure. Most times people have difficulties because they don't get that closure. The game kind of spits you out. It's a relationship that says, hey, it's not you, it's me. Yeah. And then you're like, okay, if it's not me, it's you, then I'm fine with that. But then you go on game and there's another person next year wearing your jersey number, playing your position on your same team. And you're watching, you're like, wait a minute, what's wrong with me? And there's nothing wrong with you. It's just that. Father time is undefeated. And so that's the second part, getting that closure. And then the third part, so I'm going to put these four different categories into one thing. You have to find right. a new scoreboard because we're competitive. You have to find a new team because we're, we're, we're team oriented, right? Most of us, like if you take golf or, you know, swimming or some of the yeah. other sports, that's anomaly. And then you have to find your position. And then fourth, you have to find your new championship. Every single year from the time you're a little kid until whenever you're done playing, it was, this is our year. This yeah. is our year. We're going to win the championship. We're going to be number one. And so when you don't have that anymore, you're almost like, wait, what am I supposed to do? Uh, I'll never forget uh, in college, they really encourage us to get internships. And so when I graduated college, I had five internships on a resume and going into my last one, I didn't know if I was going to play NFL but I really needed to take this internship seriously. And so I went to a financial firm in, uh, in Southern California. And I remember talking to the person who I was shadowing because they put me on rotation. So I'd shadow this person this week, another person, so on and so forth. And I asked them at lunch, I was like, 
so what are you going to do tomorrow? And he was like, what do you mean? What am I doing tomorrow? I was like, like, like tomorrow, like, so I'm doing this today, but tomorrow I'm not doing this. Like I'm going to go to class. I had summer school. I was weights and I'm going to hang out. But like, what are you going to do tomorrow? And he was like, I'm going to do the same thing. And I was like, yeah. well, what about the day after that? I couldn't fathom Kenyon, like that this person was going to do the same thing over and over a day in and day out. And at that moment, I didn't know if I was going to play in the NFL the next year. I didn't know if I was going to look for a job. But in that moment, I knew that I could not show up and go into an office every day. I couldn't do the same thing <laughs> over and over. And so, you know, part of that piece that I was just mentioning is that it's extremely important for athletes, not just to figure out what you want to do or what you're interested in, but it's okay to find out what you don't want to do. Absolutely. And so many times we're like, well, I have to, I have to, you know, classify 50,000 million things down to one thing and saying, this is what I want to do. And it's like, no, let's just find out what you don't want to do first. And then once you find out what you don't want to do, then you can reverse engineer and go backwards from there. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And I think that's, it's the mundaneness, right? Even though like you go to, you go to practice every day and you lift it, but there's, as an athlete, you think that every day is a little bit different because you're one, it's a different opponent or you're working on yep. a different thing. You know, today maybe yeah. it's defense, offense, those kind of things. And so one, two is like to be confined to an office because I felt the same way. And I always thought I wanted to be this. I want to be a division one coach. And I kept overlooking what I was good at. And my wife, she'll tell you until she's blue in the face about how. I just, just talk about, I'm not passionate about, <laughs> about selling or doing this or that. Uh, I want to coach. I want to coach, you know, I want to inspire people. And then as, as I matured, I end up getting in the positions of leadership within the companies I worked, whether it's as a corporate trainer or as a regional manager. And I realized yeah. I am a coach, like the, 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 the skills that I had that were innate that I thought should just go to basketball were actually helping me be successful in these other areas. And I finally accepted that, but I wouldn't have gotten there if I didn't do what you did. And that's yeah. go to a counselor. And yeah, I think being able, like you said, to get to the bottom of it is, is huge, but maybe that's where a lot of athletes trip up is they don't dive deep. They don't uncover these things and they really don't talk it out. And that makes transition for them really hard because they don't see how they fit in the world without, and I don't sport. know why I don't, I mean, I, I obviously I did it. So I do know why, but we've had a coach our entire life, right? <laughs> Every single day we went to a practice or we went to a game or we come to the sideline and there's a coach saying, Hey, uh, on that last play, this is what you did. This is what you need to do. Right. But for some strange reason, when we get out of the Jersey off of the scoreboard, we come into the game of life and then we're like, we don't have a coach, but we've been coached to go more higher, further, stronger in everything that we've done up until that point. So there, there's probably something there that we could pretty much unwind to help people too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, part of I'm, what I'm finding out now is I'm a fledgling speaker and you are a very accomplished speaker. But what I'm finding is that a lot of speakers that are doing very well, they've written books. Now you've written three and I do believe you just got your fourth one published, but what was it that sparked you to even think about writing a book? I, I didn't want to write another paper after graduating college. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I am like, I, I don't know how I, I got through high school. I was a 3.4 in high school, but up until that point, I was like a 2.3 grade right. point average. And then we got to college. It was like, take these classes. I'm like, well, what's the classes that I have to do the least amount of writing? And they're like, well, these ones, these ones, these ones. I'm like, all right, great. I'll graduate with that. Uh, yeah. And so it came on one week. I was in Santa Monica after I got done playing football, like that same year, I saw a familiar face. Guy asked me, what are you doing these days? And I was like, I'm a motivational speaker. Right. And he's like, that's awesome. Like, what's the name of your book? And I was like, huh? Yeah. He's like, what's the name of your book? All motivational speakers have books. He goes, Tony Robbins has this book. Les Brown has this book. Jim Rohn has this book. And I was like, wow, I didn't, I didn't really think that far. I didn't, I didn't look into this. I just got called to do it. And right. so in that same week, two other people asked me about the name of my book. And then a guy sat down with me probably a few days later out of the one of those three. He goes, this is what you want. And he helped me pretty much overview it. And then I talked to a good friend of mine who introduced me to a ghostwriter, Kathleen, and a storyteller who helped me write my first two books. And um, what it was is that as soon as she started asking me questions, mm. I just verbal vomit. Just, <laughs> oh, I, I got it. And yeah. so it was funny because when I wrote my first book, 
I thought I was going to write this business success book, this John Gordon, John Maxwell leadership book. Everybody's going to buy it. And at the end of our first conversation, Kathleen says, this book's for kids. I was like, what do you mean? Kids don't have any money. So (laughs) then she's like, that might be true. But you know what happens? Kids grow up into adults who have money. Mm. If you help a child, that kid will never forget exactly what you did for him. And so I wrote Permission to Dream. And then a couple of years later, um, you know, really adamant. I was, I was starting to do a lot of speaking and coaching and facilitating um, around the country at different colleges and helping athletes understand the transition before they ever meet it. And so um, I was very passionate about it. And so that's when I wrote The Relentless Pursuit of Greatness. And that's uh, the reason why we call it The Relentless Pursuit of Greatness is because no one said that you can't be great on the field, on the court, in your jersey and not be out. You don't have to pick either or. You can just kind of say, I'm great. I pursue greatness, greatness in me. And so that's the avenue and direction I'm going to push. Um, and then um, mentor John Gordon told me, he's like, I asked him, I said, John, what is, what is it that I need to do to go to the next level of my speaking? He's like, you have to write that book that's inside of you. And so mm. for two years, two whole years, he was encouraging me, hey, you got to write that book, got to write that book. And so uh, he finally twisted my arm hard enough. And then I wrote <laughs> Dig, which is uh, – yeah. Um, dive into your greatness, discover your depth, determination, and destiny through life's adversity. And so I uh, wrote that book, and that was my first novel. Um, and the reason why I wanted to write a novel is because, or a fable, is because most of the time when you write something that has to do specifically with you or your industry, right. you kind of just pigeonhole yourself into this audience. But if you write a story about a story, and inside of that story, there's several different stories. So many people will be able to draw and take from it. And so, uh, yeah, I published that last year and it's been doing well. Um, man, I still can't believe I, uh, I barely used to write papers in, in school and now I'm writing whole entire books. Yeah, no, it's awesome. I think that's one of the things that I, I find inspiring and I'm learning more and more is the people that I'm around like you and John David Nurse, Jordan, like you guys are, are are doing that. And it's, you're right. It's, it's encouraging for me because it's a lot of the same story. Like I never thought I would write it and then you do. And it's just, I I think, like you said, it's a great platform or foundation for you to, to continue to grow your, your motivational speaking career. But I want to ask writing a book, obviously there are some things that are personal when it comes out, you know, you've got to dive deep. Were there some things in writing any of your books that you found out about yourself that were shocking? You know what I mean? If, if that makes sense, you know what I'm saying? Every, every time you write a book, I've never birthed a baby, but we have three children. And so I can only say that I've witnessed the birth of a child and like you find out you're pregnant, you go to the doctor's visits. Now the stomach keeps getting bigger and bigger. And now all of a sudden you leave your house with two people, you come home with three. It, it's weird. <laughs> um, but I would say writing a book is the same way. Like you have this idea and this concept. This is how I want it to be. And it wasn't until my third book most recently that I was like, I'm not attached to the end result. I have this theme. I have this concept. I have this idea. And this is the impact I want to have but I'm not tied to how are we going to go? How are we going to get there? And so in the first book, it was heavily, heavily sentimental because I had just left the NFL. So Mm -hmm. I was transitioning, but I was also healing through that loss, but also healing through my childhood. And so I was able to put all out of my childhood trauma and things that I dealt with as a kid into football and I could let it out as aggression. I don't have that same outlet anymore. So now what I do is I have to write it out. And which means before you can write it, you have to think it. And then after you think it, you got to say it, which means you're almost reliving it two or three different times. And so it was super therapeutic. I found out that I'd gone through a lot of stuff because so many times I think, especially for new speakers, they start to think about what does the audience want to hear from me? What do I have to tell the audience? What have I gone through? What makes me qualified to talk about this? And it's like, You've gone through a lot. The fact that we're here breathing, you know, different circumstances, trials, tribulations, obstacles, hurdles, that we're standing here gives us that authority and gives us that right to tell our story. And so for me, I found out in the second book, wow, you have a lot of information about transitioning from sports to the game of life. Wow. It's not just, you didn't just shut up and dribble. 
You actually <laughs> went to class. You paid attention. You networked. Yeah. You thought about the big picture vision, and you maximized everything you did within that short period of time. And then with Big, it was, man, you're more creative Thomas, than you give yourself credit for. You're not. You're not just that boring. You're not boring dad that just you know <laughs> sits around and, and and hangs out. You you actually are creative. Yeah. And so um, it it was almost like each book was a caterpillar metamorphosing into a butterfly. I love it. I love it. And it, it, like you said, there, there are the ups and downs. There's things you find out about yourself. And there's a quote that you said that I thought was, it really stuck with me. And I believe it was during maybe one of your transitional programs at USC, but you said the closer you get to your dream vision or goal, the harder it becomes. And you followed it up with, if you do not want to struggle, then don't chase your dreams. And that really stuck with me because like you said, people think successful people don't struggle, but it's probably the most successful people that struggle the most. And so where did, you know, where did that thought come from? Is that something that you just can, you know, hold deep? And even now with the things you're doing, do you still find that, you know, you haven't, you've written three books, you have done all these great things, um, but you're still, you're still in the grind. Do you still have a lot of struggle or is it, I mean, honestly, is it getting easier for you? No, I, not at all. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think, I think now at, at 39 years old, three kids, a wife, everybody depends on you yeah. and I depend on God. I think the thing that I'm learning right now, Kenyon, is that in order to grow, you got to let go. And what I mean by that is that you have to let go of the processes that you think that you're going to take to get there. You have mm -hmm. to let go of, of certain comforts, of certain uh, conveniences in order to get there. One of the things that we recently did is that we moved from LA to Denver. We don't, we didn't know, we knew like three people in Denver. Yeah. And so the hardest thing was, how is it that you can leave everything that you know, your routine, your grocery stores, your parking space, where you get your hair cut, where do you go, your wife gets your nails done, her hair, well, all of these things. How do you let go of these things and how do you go to a better place in your mind if you don't try? You know, I, I remember listening to Steve Harvey talk about like, you got to jump. And he was mm -hmm. just talking about like, you're never going to become as successful as you want to be unless you jump. And what's going to happen on that jump is that you're going to, before your parachute opens, you know, you're going to scrape your knees and you're, 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 you're going to get cut up and you're going to get bruised and it's going to hurt. But eventually at some point before you hit the ground, your parachute's going to open hopefully sooner rather than later, but it's going to open. And so what I've learned about myself is that I pursue the uncomfortable. Mm. I pursue the things that are, that are uncommon, um, to sit there and say, you want to play professional football, you know, at such a young age, and then you, you, you pursue it. And so in, in, in high school, I was a great high school football player. I was parade all American, a top hundred player. I get to college and now all of a sudden that dream diminishes, it shrinks. And it's like, it doesn't look like it's going to happen. Right? So why are you still pursuing this thing that doesn't look like it's going to happen? And I'll never forget that it was, I didn't want to go back to my town and people ask me, what, you, what are you doing nowadays? Right. And I tell them, oh, well, I'm doing this. And they're like, yeah, but I thought you, didn't you, aren't you the guy who said you wanted to go to the NFL? And they don't know. I can make up any story. Oh man, I got hurt. I got injured. Uh, coach right. didn't like me. I can make up whatever I want to, but deep down inside when I'm brushing my teeth at night or when I'm going to sleep and I'm saying my prayers, I know, I know. See, I only am 100% certain of what happens if you don't try, if you quit, if you give up, if you don't pursue it with everything that you have. I only know that. And it's failure. Right. But I also have proof that if you give everything that you possibly have to your dream, which is the thing that you're pursuing, you might not always get it, but who you become is sometimes even better than what you get. And I wow. found that out firsthand going to the NFL. I get drafted 155th overall. I'm like, woo, with my family and with my parents. Two weeks later, get off the plane, land in Jacksonville. 
the the guy who picked us all up from the airport said, welcome to South Georgia. I was like, whoa, wait a minute. That, that blew my mind. <laughs> Walk into the locker room. And for some reason, I thought it was going to be like like that church music. Like, ah. Yeah. I walked through the doors. No church music. All right. Well, maybe once I get to my locker, I'm going to I'm going to feel that feeling that I was like, oh, man, it was worth it. It didn't. I never felt that feeling. I, felt, I, had, I had ups and downs. You know, another coolest feeling. The coolest feeling is when I got the picture of it still. It's when I hugged my mom. Yeah. They called my name and I said, we did it. And the reason why that moment is so strong to me and so vivid that I remember it is because in sixth grade, she came home, storming home from a parent teacher conference. And she said, you want to know what your sixth grade teacher told me today? And I was like, I don't know. Like I talk too much in class. I'm really good at recess <laughs> and, and lunch is my favorite subject. She was like, no, but these tears in her eyes. And I'd seen these tears before because yeah. she was a victim of domestic violence. And she says, your, your teacher told me that by the time you're 16 years old, you're going to be the leader of a gang shot, stabbed, and killed. And in that wow. moment, hugged her. And I said, I'm going to give you tears of joy. Wow. So you fast forward 11 years, tears of joy. So what, wow. it, it was who I became, not what I accomplished, right? And so yeah. because I didn't quit in college after the injuries, because I didn't quit when I kept getting demoted, when they kept recruiting and bringing somebody in, I didn't transfer. People tried to. We didn't have the transfer portal like we did now, but I didn't yeah. quit. It's like, ah. So when I look at myself in the mirror, I'm confident as a man because I know what I have inside of me. I know what it takes to go through something. I know what I'm going to get and who I'm going to become on the opposite side of adversity. So that when it's time to hit the stage and speak, it's like, do you get nervous? Like, of course I do. I get excited, yeah. Yeah. but nervous. I'm not, I'm not telling you about what I read. I'm telling you about looking back on my life, what I went through. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that that's strong. That's really strong. I just, <clears throat> you talk about just the resolve that is created, like you said, and, and chasing it, ups and downs, highs and lows, good, bad. There's such a resolve that's built in people that continue to, to move forward. And, you know, kind of sidebar, the whole transfer portal thing, I feel is an out, you know, for a lot of, a lot of athletes, you know, if they don't like what's happening or what's going on. And Dawn Staley said it best. She's like, I love my players too much to let them quit. I, I, to, mm. or to make it easy. She says, your parents don't want you to struggle like they did, which is true. And, you know, I'm a victim of that in, in a lot of ways as well, but it's that resolve that she's teaching the young women that she coaches and understanding, Hey, you can have a bad month you can have a bad season. That's still not going to stop me pouring into you, helping you become the best version of yourself, whether it's on or off the basketball floor. And I think as a coach, that's what we kind of, we, we, we see that. And I'm a little old school and trying to big picture when I, when I coach the, the players I coach, but it's really hard because when it comes to athletics, they see these people, Oh, he's at his fifth school in four years. And I just feel like, like you said, the resolve that's built through doing it the way you did, I think a lot of current athletes are, are missing out on that. And it's, yeah. a, it's a thing to make them successful after, like you said, after you hang up the cleats, pack the ball away, those are the things that will help you continue to be successful off the floor. Yeah. Cause if you run, if you run in anything, I, I was, I was, uh, I, I got bullied. And I wasn't getting bullied, but I got bullied, meaning like a guy called my house and he was a pretty well-known gang member mm. in seventh grade, going into seventh grade. And he was like, I've been seeing you throw up gang signs. You think you're tough. You think you're this. We're going to find out the first day of school. So my first semester, Kenyon, I ran to and from school. Now, I was still big, but I was right. like, this dude was like, this dude was the guy who was in fourth grade going to the high school to fight people. I was like, uh-uh, don't, don't <laughs> you dare. I already know how that's going to turn out. Right. So. I would run to and from school. And I remember one day my mom was like, you keep running to and from school. You're going to run the rest of your life. Mm. I'm in seventh grade. And she's like, look at all the fun. Look at all the things that you missed out on. Like I didn't eat breakfast because I was like nervous every day. And then finally one day I just saw him in the hallway. And I was like, uh Oh, I'm on my way to the bathroom. I'm like, uh Oh, I should turn back in go back to the teacher and then go in like 10 minutes. 
And I was like, nope. And I heard my mom's voice. You run from this, you'll run for the rest of your life. Mm. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I just walked and I had my head down. And then something just said like, hey man, either, either you're going to whoop me now physically or you're going to whoop me for a long time mentally. Right. And we talked it out. We shook hands and he was like, no, you're good. I was like, wait a minute. I had created this whole like outcome in my mind that you wanted to like kill me. But wow. what happened? I was able to squash it, but I missed out on my whole semester and I'll never forget that. I do not want to run. It sucks. It might hurt. It might laugh, but you know what? I'm stronger than it. Yeah. And you just have to have that mentality. Whatever the circumstances are, is that I'm stronger than it. I'm stronger than it. It ain't stronger than me and it ain't going to make me run. Yeah, man, that hits me. And, and, you know, I share with you my story with my wife and marriage and almost losing all of that. And that was what it was. I had been running for so long and it just got to that point where the text she sent me, I was like, okay, here, here's the point. Are you going to stand and face it or are you going to keep running? Because if you run, you know what's going to happen. But even in that, even if I face it, I still not, I still may not save my marriage, but I know in that moment, I'm going to become a better person, a better man. Yeah. And yeah, that's so true. And obviously that was a decision I'm very happy I made <laughs> Yes, sir. You know, six years ago. Um, so staying with family though, too, like, I want to ask, like, how are you balancing it? I know you, you know, you got a newborn, you got three kids, new place. Like what's life like for you? How are you balancing everything? Um, the, uh, my in control is being out of control. <laughs> my in control is being right. out of control. And I, and I, this is the time because we, we were, I was in LA for 20 years. I'd been so comfortable. I knew where to go, when to go. I knew the traffic times in LA, which is hard, but I knew. Right. <laughs> right. And, um, I think being in this season of life, there's a lot of trust in God. Because there's so many unknowns that if I try to do what I've always done, which is try to reverse engineer it, try to manipulate it, or yeah. try to, you know, think my way through it, I'm going to become exhausted. Somebody's going to feel neglected in my family. And then I'm going to, I'm going to be the opposite of everything that I want to be. And so um, in this season of life, my balance comes from, can I do my three things that I need to do for my self-care every single day? First thing is wake up when it's dark, get 30 to 60 minutes of reading and get some workout in throughout the day, whatever mm -hmm. that looks like. If I can get those three things, I'm good, right? From, from my core. Mm -hmm. And then being able to be in a communicative relationship with Taylor. Like we have, we have, you know, to communicate what each other needs. How is it that we can support? How is it that I can relieve her of some of the, the burdens? How is it that she can, you know, relieve me? And having that true partnership. Um, and then two, getting excited about what God has in store. Because if we already knew the answers, like, I mean, how many times in life it's like, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. And then when it happens and it was a miracle and you're like, all right, I kind of expected that. Yeah. But let's say if you let go of like step five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and you just kind of were like, I'm going to focus on this step. I'm going to think about the next step. But after that, I'm done. And then what happens? You're like, wow, perfect story. We move, we move in on May 1st into our house that night. We still had boxes, still had everything. Right. Uh, I look over on the couch, Taylor's sobbing, crying. And I'm like, oh man, it happened. She's, she misses home already. Yeah. Homesick. Did we make the right, right decision? And so I walk over there and I was starting to like feel sick and I was getting ready to tell her like, Hey, I don't know how much I can do tomorrow with the boxes. I'll do as much as I can, but I'm sick. And so I'm like consoling her and I'm, you know, hopefully she feels better by what I'm saying. And she looks at me and she goes, I'm pregnant. I'm like, wait a minute. I only signed up for like a new grocery store, a new school district. I didn't sign up for a new human. And so I automatically instantly got this burst of energy. Like I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not even sick anymore tomorrow. I'm going to unbox every single box. I'm going to help out. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it because I was so excited. I didn't plan yeah. for this. I didn't, and, and 24 hours ago, we were in LA, yeah. which if we would have had this experience in LA, I don't know how it would have felt like in LA, but we're here. 
Then we go to the first doctor's appointment and they say that our son has this uh, cyst on the back of his neck. Mm-hmm. And they start talking about all of these implications. So now she's in a high risk. We're in a new place. She's pregnant, high risk. We go to our second doctor's appointment. So they do the ultrasounds. They're, they're looking and they say, you know what? Um, it's probably better if you terminate this child. Wow. And I'm like, wait, what? Wait a minute, huh? So she looks at me like, what, what do you think we should do? And I cannot make this up. And like that same moment, we look at the ultrasound and we see the baby's arm moving. Yeah. Like, like, no, 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 I'm here. And wow. so in that moment, I was like, okay, if it's a boy, we get Bryson, middle name, Steel, last name, Williams. So we wow. go throughout this whole entire pregnancy. And every single time we go to the doctors, we don't know what they're going to tell us. It's like, oh, he's a little small. Oh, he still has this cyst on his neck. Um, we need to run tests for, you know, these thousand different complications that he could have for a short period of time of his life, long period of time, his whole entire life could be in a wheelchair, could have all of these other complications. Yeah. So she looks at me, I look at her like coming up to the point where, what are we going to do? And I'm like, what do you want to do? She's like, I don't know. What do you think? And I was like, let's pray about it. So we prayed about it. And in that night, like God was like, nah, he's going to be perfectly fine. He's going to be your son. And that name steel is going to be great because he's strong from the inside out before he ever breathed one breath, before he ever took one step, before he could do anything right, wrong, or indifferent on this earth, he was tested. And the thing about being tested is that you always find out what you're made of afterwards, but you always have to pull what you're made out during. And so what's my journey? What's my story? Who better of a person to teach Bryson Steele Williams how to go through life hard? Dad, why? Because I've gone through life hard. And so with those situations and you ask, how is it that you deal with life and how do you balance these things is that I let go now. Yeah. Because too many people need me in this moment for me to think about the next 17 steps. I love it. Oh, I love it. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to quote a, a rapper you may not know, uh, named my son out of New York city. And he said, if you want, if you ever want God to laugh, tell him your plans. Mm-hmm. And I just love that. And, and, you know, your faith is strong and we've obviously connected, you know, from that way. And that's one of the hardest things to get people to do is to let go. We think we control so many things in this life and we don't. And I think that's the message too, um, that you just try to speak over people into people is sometimes you just have to let it go. But as humans, it's so hard for us to not be able to know what's going to happen and just let it go. So man, I, I appreciate the story first and foremost and Bryson Steele. That's that's unbelievable. I love it. I love it, dude. That's, that's so cool. So cool. Yeah. Well, you know, you've given us a lot to think about, a lot of great things. And one of the things I always like to do is end on like rapid fire questions. So, you know, we get, we, we get okay. really serious, but then, you know, I like to have a little bit of fun at the end of uh, each show. And so my first one to you is in all of your travels, what is your favorite country to travel to and why? Man, I love Australia. And the reason why I love Australia is because I went on a two-week hiatus to Australia by myself. I didn't know anybody, and I just dipped. I was out. And uh, the thing that I loved about it so much is that it was a stripping of what I don't like about myself, get rid of those things, and what I love about myself, continue to do those things. So I would say Australia. And in fact, uh, me and wifey are headed back uh, this summer. Oh, nice. That's one of the places I brought up to my wife. She's like, it takes too long to get there. <laughs> so, hey, but, I, but you I, know I what, though, man, with your status, your miles and, and, and all of the partnerships that you have, you guys, are even, it's not going to take too long. You guys are going to be going to sleep <laughs> for eight hours. You know, you wake up, they give you food all the time, movies like you close your eyes. You're like, man, we're here already. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that, but that, that definitely is a bucket list country for me. Uh, yes, second one, you have a romantic evening plan with your wife. And you can go yeah. anywhere in the world. Where would you take her? 
Man, it's funny because anywhere in the world isn't her. That's not her ideal thing. Anywhere in the world is my ideal thing. Yeah. Um, because she's quality time. And so I would take her. I would I would plan and prepare something that's everything is thoughtful. So it would be a picnic somewhere where it's just her and I. It would be, um, you know, the playlist of music of all her favorite songs, all of my favorite songs, all of our favorite songs playing in the background. And it would be somewhere probably like in the summertime here in Colorado up high where you can look down, you know, either into the valley of a, of a mountain um, or down in the city. And, um, and just, I would take, oh, and then also I would take some of these uh, like connection cards. And so it's just like random questions, right? Like, yeah. what was your favorite grade in school and why? Who was your favorite teacher? And it would just be a time for us to get to know each other even more. Yeah, I love it. Your wife's a lot like mine. My, mine just wants to be on a beach and maybe not in the mountains. <laughs> but yeah, she, she, yeah, I love it. I love it. All right. So if you compare yourself to any animal, what would it be and why? It would be a lion. And this is why. Um, so I've been to South Africa three times. And the second time I went, we were on a safari and we were in the middle of like just this isolate area. And uh, everywhere you go in the safari, all the other animals traveled in packs, right? Protection, mm -hmm. safety, just how they are. And so there's this lion laying down in the middle of this field, like no care in the world by itself, no other animals behind or next to it around. And so I asked our, uh, our tour guide and I was like, why is that lion laying there by himself? And uh, he said, because it's the king of the jungle. And he kind of like laughed. And I was like, well, what makes him think that like he can just lay there? He goes, he knows based off of his reputation, what he can do, who he is that he can lay there by himself and not have to worry about anything because nobody's going to sneak up on him and mess with him. And I was like, Ooh, that's that inner strength, that confidence right. that comes from the inside out, just knowing, not thinking, not trying to be, but just knowing who you are just was ultimate confidence. So I'd say a lion. And that's the reason why. Oh, I love that too. Love it. All right. Last one. If you can trade places with anyone, anyone for a month, who would it be and why? It would be my family, my immediate family. And this is the reason why is because I want to see how I come across from their perspective. Ryan Leak has a great uh, presentation that I sat through recently. And uh, he asked this question and really empowered all of us and challenged all of us. Like ask the people who are closest to you, what is it like being on the opposite side of me? And ever since hearing that, I, I've really been curious on, you know, to, to my wife, to my kids, what is it like being on the opposite side of me? Yeah. I want to know your perspective of what you're seeing. Is it in alignment with what I'm intending to do? So that would be my switch and swap. I love it. I, I asked that question before too. And my answer was the same thing. I said, I would trade places with Chris and Keegan, not because of, you know, the money and all that kind of stuff that comes with the NBA, but just cause I never reached that level. And mm. like you're talking about, you know, walking in, I know Chris and Keegan both said when they walked into the locker room for the first time and they saw their name over a locker, just how much joy they felt. And one, they thought back to the fact that five years ago they had one division one offer wow. and it was Western Illinois. The coach got let go, so that offer was gone. Wow. I said, we got to look at options. They're like, oh, we'll just go junior college. I'm like, no, you guys are going to this prep school that we found through a crazy uh, chance of events that happened. And actually, the coach that drafted me out of Iowa into the CBA was one of the owners of the, the prep school. And yeah. it was just one of those things, like I said, there's nothing in life I'm ever going to tell you you have to do except this thing, because <laughs> I know you have, there's more in you that people haven't seen. And yeah. so through that journey and then obviously going to Iowa and then being drafted, just their feeling of accomplishment, their feeling of we set a goal. And even though we wanted to waiver, our parents were there. I didn't know how I was going to do it. They moved to Florida for six and a half months with my wife when we're going wow. through the midst of our 
marriage struggles and going through counseling. And we didn't know, we said, listen, we don't know if we're going to be together at the end of this, but for our kids, we have to do this. And when you said we made it, um, the Jersey that's in my one of, well, Chris and Keegan's jerseys on the wall and Keegan wrote on his, he said, you know, thank you to my coach, my dad, my biggest cheerleader, we made it. And like that feeling, you know, that they felt like I just, you know, I, I would definitely want to change places with them because it's such a huge accomplishment when nobody else believed in them, but us. And yeah. they had some good coaches along the way. So I know that was long and drawn out, but yeah, just no, I, I, I feel you it. when it comes to the, to the family thing. And, and I, I truly, truly appreciate you sharing what you shared um, with me and, and for our audience. So I just want to say thank you, brother. It's uh, man, thank it's you been for awesome getting, me. thank you for it, what you do. Oh, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I still remember that last walk we had in Colorado. Yeah. That was, uh, I felt like that was that moment where, I don't know, I just felt like I gained so many more brothers in, you know, at the retreat during that time. And, and then there's, you feel like there's so many ways we're connected. So I just, I just want to say thank you. You've inspired me um, in ways you have no idea. Um, but I just want to give you, give that back to you because I appreciate you pouring into me when you did and how you continue to pour in me. And, um, and hopefully I'm just saying like, hopefully I'll be sitting where you are someday because you're definitely an inspiration to me. Oh man. Well, you know what? Thank you for that. I, uh, I do it because of what has been done for me and I've had several people who have poured into me. And so they said I could never pay them back. I just have to pay it forward. So, uh, from them, through me to you. It's all love, brother. I appreciate you. And I appreciate, appreciate you coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. This podcast is sponsored by Storyline Multimedia. Storyline is an Iowa City-based media company that specializes in creating high-quality video, photo, and audio productions for local businesses. Not only that, but they also produce a number of podcasts, including this one. So if you're interested in sharing the story of your business with the world, Contact them today by visiting storylinemultimedia.com. And remember, your story matters.